Lovely, right. Well, so 2020, uh, new year, new decade, New Year's resolutions. I don't know about you. It feels a cliche thing to open with. I don't have any, but if I did, it would probably be to wear no blue or something. We'll see how that goes. But um, we are starting a new series, and we're calling it Follow Me. And for the next six weeks um, or so, we're going to be looking at some of the principles and the practicalities um, that characterized the way in which Jesus approached leadership. And in many ways, it feels like leadership's uh, been heavily under the spotlight in recent times. We've had a long season of elections and referenda and never-ending, seemingly, leadership contests. And it's never been so scrutinized so loudly by so many or based on such little information or context. And social media has been a horrific amplifier. Um, You know, it's made everything very depersonalized. It's made opinion very ugly. It's made everything less considered and more aggressive and disrespectful. And it all just seems to become about who can shout the loudest. And it just seems 2019 was a very angry year. I feel like 2019 was an angry year in so many ways. And I think some people were just very, very angry. And the rest of us were probably really, really weary of very, very angry people. But we do have what people would throw around probably too much as a kind of you know, sense of crisis in leadership. And it, I think it has been a bit overstated because that's what we do to most things. But um, should we be really surprised? Because actually, surely our leaders are, are really, sadly, just a reflection of our culture. You know, can we really expect our leaders to be any different? Whatever the reason, it is a sad state of affairs. And, you know, we've seen a kind of a rise politically in populism that narrative which says, why should you be in charge? And there's a rising suspicion and a cynicism of leadership and that's that sense of distrust and misalignment and that that whole weakening bond between traditional politics and the people and everyone's angry and, and grumbling. And, you know, it doesn't help in our public life that actually leadership seems more about managing optics and marketing a narrative and increasingly little about character and integrity. You know, you could argue never has our country or our world needed leadership redefined. And yet Jesus spoke and lived leadership so differently. He defined it so oppositely to what is being presented to us. And like I said, our city needs us to advocate a redefinition of what that is. And most of all, it probably needs needs to see us as the church living that. So let's just turn turn to you, but I'll be on the screen. We're going to open Mark 10, starting verse 32, going through to 45. Uh, So Mark 10, 32. And it says this, it says, They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, 
you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me just pray. Father, we, uh, we, are, uh, we, we are in awe of your goodness, Lord. We are in awe of your wisdom. And Father, we acknowledge that we are in need of you uh, today. Um, our culture needs you, God. Our, our hearts need a clearer vision of you when it comes to what it means to lead and be disciples and followers of you, dear Lord. And so, Father, we just pray, God, that as we spend the next 20 minutes or so just consciously waiting upon your wisdom, God, that you would speak to us. Father, we say our ears are open, Lord. Our hearts are, uh, are before you as, a, as an offering of um, a vessel to be spoken to, Lord. So, Father, presence yourself with us in a way that we hear from you, Jesus. Amen. And so, for those who uh, like to know where we're going, we're going to... Uh, we're going to see an obstacle to leadership. We're going to see a redefinition of it with a warning in the middle. So to set the scene a little bit, it's the week before Passover. And there should be a yeah, perfect map. And they're up in the north, or they were a few weeks ago, and they're walking down that road from Capernaum towards Jerusalem via Jericho. And Jesus is going to Jerusalem for what would be the last time. It began in these, these two chapters, which are basically trying to summarize two chapters here. But up in the north, we had a couple of chapters before this, we had the Mount of Transfiguration, which was somewhere near the Sea of Galilee. And in many ways, uh, then they continued south, and then they came to Jericho, which we'll see in a minute, and then they ended up in Jerusalem. And there's a conversation which goes on along that road south. And you can almost hear it. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That would do my nut. <laughs> I'm not a genie. And yet Jesus doesn't. He says, okay, I'll let that one go. And he just says, ask him a question. What do you want me to do for you? And they say, we want to sit at your right and your left and we want to be in your glory. And effectively they say, we want positions of power and significance. We wanted, they wanted to be seen with him. They wanted the, to be seen as authoritative with him. In essence, they wanted the prestige and the power and to hitch a free ride on Jesus, what they perceived as his coattails. And he goes on, he rebukes them for not knowing what they're talking about. But then he goes on, he says, those who are considered rulers of Gentiles lord it over and exercise authority over them. And then he turns it on his head. And he defines what glory really is. And he says, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave. And you see, Jesus redefines greatness. He says, to be great, you have to be a servant to all. You have to choose the lesser. You see, true greatness in a Christian sense is a race to the bottom. It's a race to becoming the least. It's a race to serving. 
the real question is competitively, can you outserve someone? That's the only competition that following Jesus can really provide. And to be honest, I really love their honesty. I mean, it's just so blatant. And it, captures, it does capture a bit of a timeless sentiment that lurks within every human heart in many ways. That desire for greatness, the desire for significance. And in fact, it's all there. It's all there in all of us. In these verses, we just find James and John being particularly honest about it. And why is that? Where does that appetite for greatness come from? The truth is, we were designed. We were made for greatness. We were made to know greatness. The trouble is, we look for it in all the wrong places and in all the wrong ways. You see, greatness in the kingdom of God, the trouble is we look to ourselves instead of looking to God and what he's doing. We opt to focus on our own success or we go after our own wealth or our position, our position or prestige. And in fact, what, the, what, what greatness is, it's, it's, it's enjoying what God is doing. And yet we take that pleasure, instead of dwelling and beholding God, we, we try and create that ourselves in our own slightly pathetic kind of way. In an interview with Vanity Fair, Madonna said this. She said, I have an iron will, and of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get into another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. She says, my struggle has never ended and it probably never will. Now that, that is shockingly honest. And yet, if that's what she's saying, and I think in many ways, sadly, that's deeply prophetic. To many in our time, that is a deeply, sadly, prophetic reality because this relentless pursuit of greatness to somehow quench a sense of inadequacy, it will lead to a never-ending struggle. And you see, we can't talk about leadership without talking and addressing greatness, you see, because appetites and ambitions of greatness are the first hurdle to godly leadership that many just do not hurdle. Because our egos crave attention. We're bent on a degree of self-worship. And leadership and power, in, on the face of it, give a very easy way of almost achieving that and indulging that ego. But the tragedy is it's completely contrary to what Jesus has just been saying in these verses and in his teaching. An appetite for your own glory will always hinder godly leadership. I remember some years ago I was upstairs and a friend who used to come to the church, doesn't anymore, uh, she walked into my office and said, um, made some reference thing called a BNAC. B-N-A-C. And I was like, what are you talking about? It was a BNAC. She said, big name at church and literally I'm not kidding I felt angry I felt aggressively angry in my heart and she meant it as a joke mostly it was probably satirical but it but it was it made I remember feeling really aggressively angry because it was so contradictory to everything Jesus says it was so contradictory to everything we're trying to build here 
It was so opposite to the culture and the people we're trying to be. And although I was completely able to understand where they were coming from, it really, I remember feeling anger. And here at Central, there will be no big names. We will never be that church. We cannot, cannot follow Jesus and be a church of names. And we want to say, not on our watch, will Central be a church of nonsense big names. We are going to be a people who mess and all, link arms and follow Jesus together in order to, for this city to know that it is loved and significant. Uh, John Quincy Adams said this, he said, if your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more and become more, you are a leader. And you see that he captures some good wisdom there. See, leadership is not a position. Leadership is influence. Leadership is not having your name at the top of something, but rather treating every single person you come across as Jesus would. Leadership is taking responsibility for the culture we have here and in every environment you find yourself in. Godly leadership means being an enabler. It means elevating the position of those around you at the expense of your own. And you see, good leaders will always, first and foremost, be good followers. Because that's Jesus' call to each of us. Before we're good leaders, before we're leaders, we will always be followers. A follower of Jesus is a leader's primary title. And his command to us, Jesus' command to us is, go and make disciples. He says, go and expose my wisdom to your city and this world. Tell of my grace. Tell this city of my affection for them. Speak to them my hope. And it's really interesting. Verse 32, it's a tiny word. He just, uh, just says that Jesus went ahead of them. Or in the NIV it says he was, he, he was leading the way. He went first. He took initiative. Jesus went where there was nothing but empty road ahead of him. And you see, he calls us to participate for our joy. Because when we participate in a sacrifice-driven, servant-hearted leading, we get to get a taste of what it's like to be God himself. You see, God is a God of initiative. We know that. He's a God who intervened. He was a God who stopped and he stooped. And in Romans 5, you know, it says when you know, God demonstrated his love for us, um, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, he loved us so much that he intervened. He intervened because he loved you and he loved you and he loved you. And the question Jesus asks his disciples, what do you want me to do for you, is so powerful. About 10 years ago, a guy called Dave, he used to come to this church, lives in Oxgangs. He'd go out on, on a Friday night, he'd wander Ox gang shops, hanging out with the youth. I went with him a couple of times. It's not my bag, but I did it just for the fear of it. And, um, but he literally, he would go up to these youth and he would say, what can we do for you? That was uh, literally, that was almost the exact phrase he used. What can we do for you? And Street Team became a missional community, which then became Ox Gang's community church. And you see, Dave would never call himself a leader. 
by human standards, he probably didn't tick all that many of the standard expectation boxes, but he cared enough to ask that question. And th there is now a church there because Dave cared enough, he took enough courage to ask that question. What would it be like if we asked, if we could have a dozen of churches planted anywhere because we had the boldness and cared enough to ask that question in the communities we find ourselves. And you see, we need to pause for a moment and we need to zoom out a bit because we need to have a look about scripture and see what comes next. Um, get the map up again. What happens in the next part? We're not going to read it because it takes some time. They've been walking south and it says that they come along the road to Jericho and they meet the blind man, Bartimaeus. And he's blind and he's a beggar and he's standing there and he keeps shouting out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he's really persistent and Jesus calls him over. And this is really uncanny. Jesus asks him exactly the same question, like exact word for word, exactly the same question. He's just asked the disciples, what do you want me to do for you? And to a blind man, it's a fairly simple answer. Rabbi, I want to see. And he, Jesus says, yeah, faith, faith has made you well. And he, he follows Jesus, but being able to see. The thing that's interesting is Jesus asks these three people exactly the same question. James and John's response to what do you want me to do for you? I want, we want to be great. Bartimaeus' response have mercy on me. Heal me. I want to see. So we have three people. We have two people who can see, one who's blind. We have two people who have been companion with Jesus for years, one who's never met him. We've got James and John who have who had explicit explanation of where Jesus is going and what his mission is. This is the third time that bit we just read at the beginning. It was the third explanation they'd have, and it was pretty obvious. And yet, these two disciples were completely blind to who Jesus really was and where he was leading them. You see, they could not see beyond their human ambition. And the irony here is ridiculous because in a spiritual sense, the only one who could see of the three of them was the blind man. You see, the, desire, the disciples' desire for human greatness and their ambition for position and standing, and it, it left them blind to the cost of following Jesus. They were blind to the cost of following Jesus. And that's a real warning for us because we can be so familiar with Jesus that we can miss Jesus. The danger for us is completely the same. Our blindness can prevent us from seeing the cost of following Jesus. You see, we can confuse Jesus with knowing about him, coming to church, being generally nice and helpful. But following Jesus is costly. Leadership is costly. Being a leader means inconvenience. It means sacrifice of your time, your comfort, your money, your social life. And it's really interesting. The disciples said that they could drink the cup and be baptised at the baptism in that episode. And yet Jesus' response was, you have no idea what you're asking. Because James and John, they saw the, the you know, back in, before it turned into the Eucharist, the, the cup and the um, uh, baptism were very much a place of position and it was an anointing. 
And it was, you know, and they still thought it was a kingdom and a glory in a conventional human way. But for Jesus, it was completely opposite. The baptism and the cup meant the worst miscarriage of justice culminating in suffering and death. And yet James and John were completely blind to what that meant. And it's really interesting, because, like I say, this journey had become, had started up in the Mount of Transfiguration, a demonstration of Jesus' divine nature, a manifestation of his glory. But Jesus leading them south down that road culminated in his dying. And what, humanly speaking, what looked like as an absolute tragedy was actually an even greater glory. And it was that, that walk that Jesus took south secured for us our eternity. But th- there is always a trajectory of leadership. And the trajectory of leadership is always a walk to death. That is the leadership Jesus modelled, a walk to death. And that's a call for us as essential this year. The challenge is, will we follow Jesus in taking that walk to a form of death? Will we, are we willing to die to the self? Are we willing to die to our appetites and our ambitions? Are we willing to die to our notions of greatness and prestige? You see, the motives of our hearts will always be murky. And actually, if we're going to become leaders and influencers, we have to be, it means getting really honest with ourselves. And probably uncomfortably so. Because we need to be able to own those ambitions and appetites and insecurities we'd rather not think about. Listen, you cannot be a Christian and insist on your rights. Culture tells us that our rights are sacred, that entitlement is some sort of human right, but the, the gospel has no space for equality or fairness. And this may seem a shocking thing to say in 2020, but, but it's not there. If, if, Jesus, if God had been fair with us, it wouldn't turn out well. We should be so grateful that God didn't deal with us fairly. And you see, being a kingdom, being a leader in the kingdom of God means being misunderstood. It's going to mean being unfairly judged. It's going to mean embracing personal injustice. It means fighting for justice for others, but being willing to sacrifice our own. Are we really up for that? Because that's hard. That's not nice. It's not fun. And yet, that's the path that Jesus calls us to walk in as men and women aspiring to be godly leaders. But as we take these steps of courage, we do find healing. I'm just going to give you a quick quote from Tim Keller. He says this, he says, Jesus' example and grace heals our will to power. The normal response to our sense of powerlessness is to deny it, to find people to dominate and control in order to live in that denial. But Jesus shows us another way. By giving up his power and serving, he became the most influential man who ever lived. Jesus is not only an example, however, he is a saviour. And only by admitting our sin, need and our powerlessness 
and by casting ourselves on his mercy, will we finally become secure in his love and therefore empowered in a way that does not lead us to oppress others. The insecurity is gone. The lust for power is cut at its root. And actually, when we sacrifice those things, when we cast our selfishness upon him, we find freedom. When we, when we stop trying to acquire and to take, we actually find a, a, f- a freedom from fear and insecurity, which seems kind of really counterintuitive. As we adopt that position of a servant, as we lead in sacrifice, Jesus says we actually find what life's all about. That's what he talks about, finding life in all its fullness. Are we willing to test God in that this year? Are we willing to, to test actually what Jesus says about life in all its fullness is right by sacrificing some stuff we find joy? By choosing to be lesser, we find a deeper fulfillment in our hearts? Are we willing to take God at his word on that and give it a go? You see, it's the love of God, it's the love of Jesus that enables us to lead and he's gone before us. He doesn't ask us to do something that he's not already done. He asks us simply to follow him. And you see, every appetite you have and I have is is satisfied in knowing God. Every insecurity and fear we carry, every ambition we have finds its peace in knowing the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. It's possible. That's his invitation. Die and find life. Empty yourself and find fullness of joy. So as we finish, we're gonna let's just have some moments of quiet. I think the band will will come up. And why don't we why don't we stand up now? And uh, why don't we why don't we just let's just shut our eyes, and then we say to you, uh, Father, we acknowledge you. We, we acknowledge your greater wisdom. Lord, we, we know that you know us better than we know ourselves, Lord. And, and as we just spend a moment of quiet, let's just bring, what are, the, what are those ambitions and appetites in your heart? What are those things which we need to surrender? Where are the things we need to say, God, I don't totally believe you about that. Father, we acknowledge you're here, God. We acknowledge the power of your Holy Spirit and the ability for you to speak incredibly potently. And Father, we just pray that right now you'd be revealing significant things of the deficits in our hearts, Lord. And we thank you that you deal with us gently. You deal with us so gently, Lord. And others of us we need to ask that same question that Jesus asked. What do you want me to do for you? And God, we just pray right now as we have a moment of quiet, Lord, where that you'd put on our minds the places that we need to take that question and take initiative with. Where do you need to be asking, what do you want me to do for you? Where in your city, where in our city do we be asking that? 
the people, the colleagues in our lives, our families. Where do we need to ask that question? Where do you need to ask that question in your life? And so, Spirit, we just thank you for your kindness to us. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice for us. We thank you for your greater wisdom, which is so attractive in moments like this. It's so hard to live out, Lord. And we pray for a redeemed heart. We pray for redeemed attitudes. We pray for redeemed appetites. And God, we pray that you would rise your church up to be a beacon and a demonstration of what taking initiative and leading is in this city and this culture, Lord. And Lord, we say right now as a church, we want to be part of that. We want to model that, Lord, and we want to follow you so well. We want to follow you so well, Lord. And Father, where we are stubborn and where we're resistant and where we feel dead, Spirit, we just welcome your life. There is nothing you have done or can do that can disqualify you from being used by him. There is nothing you've done or can do that disqualifies you. That walk Jesus took was utterly perfect for your eternity. And so, Father, we praise you for that. We revel in your glory.